Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com slash CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 400 of Constructive Criticism. I'm your host, Spencer, and I'm joined by my, my co-hosts, a man who constantly bubbles. You might as well just call him Froki, Mason Clark. Did you say you might as well call me Croaky? Froki, but I like... Oh, Froki. <laughs> the, the, I get it. The bubble frog Pokemon, Mason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He uses bubble beam. The artifact dagger king himself, Ape Stein. If you're going to be shooting daggers like that, you might as well just put them in... In hammer time. That new kunai card says any target. It's the hammer breaker. <laughs> the mirror breaker. You shoot the Esper Sentinel. <laughs> so we have a lot to talk about today. It's episode 400. And today's topic is always be improving. Which, by the way, huge shout out to Abe when we were talking about like, what do we want to do for episode 400? I'm pretty sure that it's probably what we did for episode 200. But. And 300. Is that true? <laughs> Yeah, the episode 300 has a different spin, but it is a very similar idea. I went back and listened to some of it. I also went back and listened to episode 300, and I didn't remember that. It's not verbatim, but I, I think it's very similar. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Like, I think different I context on some ideas. Like, I'm going on the record right now and saying it. Abe's <laughs> <laughs> like, I know we like to pre-plan the show, Spencer. Just put down the calendar yeah, for 2024. Spen- I'll see you there. <laughs> Spencer's a big, plan of, uh, big fan of the pre-plans. But today, we're going to be talking about always be improving and kind of both the origins of what it means to be always improving and where it came from and kind of what we've learned from it. We're also uh, going to talk about something much bigger, bigger than always improving guys. It's bigger than us. The fun fact, magic is bigger than the constructive criticism podcast. Mason's like, nah, no, no, no. They're both like, nah, don't, uh, don't gaslight me like that. But something big <laughs> happened today. It's really funny because I think literally on either mic checks for the patrons or the podcast last week, I literally said, I really wish this had happened. And we got a ban and restricted announcement today. Abe, why don't you tell us what that announcement was? The big ones, a single card, the same card, being banned in both Modern and Pioneer. And that is Luris of the Dream Den, the uh, most notable offender of all of the companions from Ikoria. Uh, too naturally aligned with the deck building incentives of putting as many cheap cards in your deck as possible. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> impossible to see this one coming. Apparently it was played in like 30% of modern decks that made it to four wins uh, after four matches in Moto Leagues uh, and like 20% of Pioneer decks. I personally think that in Pioneer it probably would have been fine to stay for another couple of years, but it, it's better to just cut ties with it now because it will just get to that point. I think the ban of Pioneer makes a lot of sense for the way the community talks about it. They're like, it's funny because I hear, hear a lot of people say what you're saying, which I think maybe from a gameplay perspective is true. 
but like people are like just ban all the companions. And they're like, hey, we know Loris is going to get broken. This is a forever format. There will be enough one and two mana things that we know we're going to have to ban this. So we're going to do it now. I, but I, like, I didn't mean it for Pioneer. I meant for Modern. I, mean, I, I didn't mean it for Pioneer. I just want to see all of them <laughs> sure. gone. It just feels weird being in this broken state where it's like, okay, I guess I'll go to breaking the next companion until they're like, oh, I guess this one needs to go too. It, it's just weird to me to feel like that's the way the format is. The way the format is right now kind of... Luris was holding up a couple of good archetypes that were like keeping a good amount of balance, the same way that you could argue that Luris was holding up a good amount of balance with uh, some of the other Modern Horizons 2 cards in Modern, with like people not necessarily being able to play Murktide Region all the time, or not always being able to play Solitude or Fury in their decks for free, uh, kind of having to make a decision on those lines, leading to what was a good and fun format for a while. It's kind of like a similar thing, but on a much lesser degree with the kind of cards you play in Pioneer, but that is to be seen. The other bands were Galvanic Relay and Disciple of the Vault and Popper, uh, as well as Expedition Map getting unbanned. I think it was either last week or the week before we actually talked about kind of the Popper decks that were showing up with Experimental Synthesizer. I don't know. I'm not really surprised to see any of these bands. I think that Synthesizer made both of these cards too good. I also really like the unbanning of Expedition Map after... They really went after Tron in the last banning. You can also listen to the Common Knowledge podcast to hear about this. But I, I want to quickly touch on what we each think about this, because you guys kind of talked about it a little bit, but like, I'm pretty happy with the banning of, of Luris and Modern. Personally, like all of the Modern that I've played in the last, you know, since I started playing Modern again, 100% of it were Luris decks. You know, whether it was Hammer Time or GSD, or GDS. Uh, it's just what I played. And the Twitter community in Magic was like, this doesn't make your expensive cards good anymore. And it's like, yeah, but it makes your decks kind of cooler in a lot of different ways. Like, the fact that I now get to decide if I want to play Gurmag Angler or Murktide Region or, like, you know, if Street Wraith is worth it. There's lots of things that can change how you build your decks. As part of that, it means that Stabber Denial opens up a lot more if you want that to be kind of your avenue depending on how you build your deck stuff like that while the point being made that yes this does not make blood bright elf better in jund and it's possible that like low to the ground jund decks are still better than like more mid-rangey jund decks overall uh this is a good banning for the format because it opens up the types of cards that i get to look at when building my decks it's like really important and uh carmen handy has mentioned this when it comes to cubing it's important to like have dreams or whatever and to have aspirational things in a cube. And I think the same thing is true in Magic. And I think sometimes we see bannings like this that I think are A, are good, and B, like we have like people who come around and they're like, oh, like your Bloodbird Elf isn't good now. But like people feel like they can like have that conversation, think about that. And that is a, a big part of Magic to a lot of people. It's kind of everything up to into the tournament, picking your cards and stuff like that. And while, yeah, Blood Rail is probably not it, there have been a lot of really powerful three drops that we have seen see play during Loris, which is a scary thing. Think about the, the fact that there are cards that are actually, like, not as good as Loris, but, like, they have swung the needle enough times and shown up. Like, Chandra Dress to Kill, Season Pyromancer, different, totally different types of cards than Loris. But Luris makes it so much better and so much clearly better than that that it ends the conversation. It makes it a lot less fun. I really liked a lot of the Luris gameplay and stuff like that, but it was, like, really taxing, <laughs> you know, to, like, always have to play against Luris and whatever and have that happen. And it's going to be cool. Like, is, like, Liliana the Last Hope? Is that the one from Eldrazi at minus two, minus ones? Ignoble Hierarch into that is a play pattern we've never seen before, and that's like a Renin Six type play pattern against other monkey decks. Jund is a good example of this. I really like how you've brought up like 
those cards. This opens up different things. I don't know. I, I was pretty disappointed in Magic Twitter today, so I should probably shut up because I was just like, you guys are just being mean. I've played a lot of Shadow recently. I played it in the NRD this last weekend. I was planning to play it in more events coming up. I think the reason it was so good was it was a proactive deck that could legitimately take the control role, like almost like a hard control deck in a lot of matchups. Like I, I played one EE this last weekend, but I played two before that. And I was very easily like looping dress down EEs and just like, because Loris also pushed the format down, EE for two and one is all you really needed. And you just would take over these games. And so Shadow, I think, gets to become like a, a cool tempo deck again. And I think it's still good, which I, I kind of like. By banning Luris, all the decks, I think, are still playable. They all just get a little worse, and they open up some cool new ways to play them. I really like... And we don't have to play with Dress Down forever anymore, which I love. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> I hate Dress Down. <laughs> I, it's so boring. Well, I think... I think- for what it's worth, I don't know that their dress down will even disappear. I just think it becomes a more of a toolboxy card instead of like a annoyance, if that makes sense. I'm a little tired. I, mean, I meant to say dress down forever, like EOT dress oh, got down, it, got it. and then it stays, and then you do it again. Yeah, and that, I played a lot of games where I was like, "Yeah, opponent, you can literally never win." Like I watched this happen to a humans player. It's like your deck doesn't work anymore. I have these huge shadows. I'm going to abyss you every turn and draw yeah, two cards. It's you humility, will die, but it's one sided. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's just like I'm not a two cards. Yeah, I had yeah. a I had a moment with with EE where that happened when I was playing this deck, kind of like what you were saying. Where like I'm gonna EE a lot here, and you need to probably concede. I I think that the thing that I wanted to touch on that we kind of haven't gotten to yet is what I would rather them just ban all the companions in older formats. Like just admit you made the mistake. They're all going to get broken. Did y'all see the work I did on Obosh today? I did see the work My that innovations. you did on Obosh. I like both of your tweets today. The like, we're going to put ourselves, you know, we're just going to literally take out one companion, put in the other one from Mason. Oh, yeah, Gigantha and GS. Yeah, yeah you lose Torok, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can still play Torok. No, yeah, you yeah, can. Yeah. It, it's on, the black black. It's only cost one. It only costs one black on the front side. So it's one black and then uh, black black to kick. You're in there, dude. But to a- to Abe, your tweet, like, you know, anti and companions, I kind of agree. I think that, like, they're just unreasonable mechanics that we shouldn't have. I think just with the way they are, they're just so unhealthy for magic. Abe, can I throw in the London Mole there with you for the third <sighs> hand in the handshake? Oh, man, could you? I think that, I think that all of the gameplay homogenization things... I mean, Annie's completely different. You know, Annie's, like, a relic of, like, 22 years ago, 28 years ago. 94 is when magic came out it was happening then and it hasn't happened since the reward so heavily outweighs the cost and especially when the cost is just like or is like too well aligned like Laris was with things being good or is not enough of a cost like with yorian where you just play a bunch of good cards that get you through your deck enough and churn and you just like win on raw card advantage or um like when the deck building costs for like uh gigantha is like I can't play double-colored spells. My mana already probably doesn't want to play double-colored spells in a format that's that big. So it's just all of them are such a big problem and just do so much to make the game about them and a like deck-building process about them. And instead of introducing a reward for doing one of these things, all of those designs introduce a parameter under which you have to build your deck because the advantage is so high. You need to capture it, and it's just... It's just too much. I think I think about the green white one a lot. The um, I don't remember the name. Do you of hear it. the orphan guard? There's like, oh yeah, this is free. It's kind of annoying. I think that like the blue red otter one would get to that point. Like if they just started banning companions one after another, eventually people would just be like, okay, well like 
I can have to make these two concessions and then I get an eighth card. I yeah, know. I mean, there are ones that where it's like really high. Like, I think, like, what, Karuga, where you have to play like, things that all cost three or more. Like, all of your spells have to have mana value three or more. That one's pretty yeah. rough. Zerda. Zerda. Dude, Karuga was rough, a fun. Karuga was a fun standard deck for what it's worth. That was. That was a hot time. The ones that are like super high cost, I guess, could stay, but like the whole mechanic has just caused nothing but problems. Luris is definitely the first step towards undoing that, but I think that, you know, we'll see Yorion and like Kihiro become staples wherever they can exist. Obosh become a staple wherever it can exist, and slowly and then slowly be like, well, you know, I guess these decks are just a little bit better than the other decks because they have this thing going on. They read the narrative. They're they're smart. They know how these things kind of work, right? They figured it out for Luris. I'm sure the people at play design and in charge of this can figure out the other stuff. Because to me, what today read as, we have more companions coming. That's what it read to me. It was like, hey, Luris is the really messed up one. We have more coming, so we're not getting rid of the I didn't read that in that at all. And if there are more companions coming, I don't want to say that, like, my confidence in the future of magic will dwindle. Because I am always superbly confident in the future of magic. But I think that it would be incredibly tone deaf and it would have me asking questions about people that I really respect about what they're seeing that I'm not. The response to that would be so absolutely negative from the community after how we've all seemed to feel, as a, like especially on the competitive side, about them. I could see them coming in something like five years, ten years down the line that we revisit this mechanic sure. and do it again with more development time, more testing behind the ideas. But it, it clearly, we shot, like, from the hip way too hard here. And this, like, has missed the mark. And I would hope they're not just gung-ho with bringing them right back. Because I think that that would be, like, a huge flop for a bunch of people. I think that's something that would make people quit Magic. Me, personally, I wouldn't. But I think that's something that would make lots of people not want to play Magic anymore. Speaking of the theory of fire, let's go into our hot main topic. Which is always be improving. First of all, I want to give a couple of shout-outs really quick before we, like, go into this. Uh, the first one I want to give is Mason. Dude, you doing okay? I'm hanging in. (laughs) (laughs) Mason's doing this show, guys, on an amount of sleep that would knock me out for multiple days for what it's worth. I actually can't function on what Mason is doing right now, so I just want to give Mason a huge shout out. In a non-functional way that lets me function right now. (laughs) I guess. I made a post. uh, Somebody called a novel, by the way. I need to get your guys' feedback live on the podcast. Was that post too long? No. Mason's like, yeah, it not was. for the amount of time that you've put into the show, but it was a bit of a chunk. I also tried to look in WordPress for the word count, but like 80% you. of the words are literally names of patrons. It was not as long as a Star City Select article, and I wrote those every week. How grateful I am for everyone who's ever given feedback to the podcast, everybody who's ever kind of done, like, all of that stuff. Just every listener, every patron, every co-host. Like, people used to give me crap, like, Spencer can't keep a can't keep a co-host. And then you, like, look at everyone other than LSV on, like, uh, Limited Resources. You're like, you know what? It's actually just hard to do... 400 episodes of a podcast what i think is even cooler for this show is just evolving and having a vision for like a goal that's really cool for i think myself and i I think abe and mason too is we're 400 episodes in but like our goal is to just help you improve at magic not just because we think we're smarter because i don't think that's what it is i think it's like we're sharing what we learn as we learn it because we wish somebody had done that for us as we were getting better that's always been the goal of the show and it was 
really cool to kind of see a lot of that stuff. I wanted to read something that was sent to me. I got a couple things sent to me, but I thought this one stood out to me a lot. And so I really wanted to highlight it. Uh, and it's from Adrian. Adrian is one of our longest listeners, longest patrons. And I have a lot of love for Adrian. I think he's a super cool dude. But he says, I was decently closed-minded when I started listening to the podcast. I didn't like to be wrong or look stupid. Dude, me either. That was me when I started the podcast. So not only was it you when you started listening, but it was me when I started it. He says, though I still struggle this f- with this from time to time, though not as bad. CCMTG helped me to embrace always improving in magic and in life. I think it's a, the biggest boon to the show. This one time, I get this message from this kid, like small child his name was mason clark i'm like 25 in this story i think i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure you were 17 (laughs) yes yeah i'm turning 29 in two days (laughs) i can't believe how long the podcast has been going (laughs) so true bestie (laughs) (laughs) man my gray hairs When did you build a time machine, Mason? When did it happen? Dude. It's during COVID. Ed, are you having the laughs and stuff? There was legitimately a time in my life in which I believed that Mason Clark was not a real human being. <laughs> this is a true statement. Like, straight up. Dude, some days I don't even not, believe he's real and did, I like hang out with him all the time. I did not believe Mason Clark was a real human being. It was like a total... And I kept the joke going until I met him. I get this message from this kid, kid Mason... SOV Mason, really, for what it's worth. I mean, it would change the trajectory of, like, the show. It tr- changed what we were doing. And I, I want to take a moment to kind of talk about where hashtag always improving comes from. I th- it it might have been the second year of the show. So uh, episode, after episode, I don't know. It, it was right after I qualified for the Pro Tour. Um, I got this job at a startup called Thumbtack. And they had two really big pillars building pillars in which you build your company on because it's it it builds the culture and i think that like in a lot of ways i like to treat the podcast like a startup and be lean and like try and figure out ways to do to optimize things but the two things that thumbtack was really big on was number one treat every day like day one to think about the first day at any new job where you're trying to soak in everything that you can and learn as much as you can and be as attentive as possible and to make that be your attitude for as long as you work at that startup. Um, and I really loved that one. And I still use it today at my workplace. Like I still try always have ideas that are coming from other people and stuff. But the other one that they had was always be improving. And the funny thing about the culture at Thumbtack, but they, they would do that. Like, like hashtag always be improving. And I straight up stole it. The mindset of being always improving was, already what we were talking about on the show i mean when you look at kind of how the show started we have this horrible episode one episode two episode three and by episode five we kind of started to get this idea of like what are we trying to accomplish because the reason that the ccmtg was started was because we were going to ptqs there wasn't like a podcast for ptq players there were like a bunch of standard podcasts but there weren't podcasts dedicated to like Okay, you're going to your local PTQ this weekend. What are the top decks in the current PTQ format? That used to be a thing. You used to have seasons. And so CCMTG originally was like talking about the things for the season. And then eventually, all right, we're going to do a format deep dive of some kind, either talking about an individual deck or talk about something like that. 
and then we're going to talk about you know something that's going to help you improve in magic and things that we've learned along the way and you know in year two always improving comes along and is takes over the identity of the show because it fits in so well and we realized pretty quickly from the absolute explosion of the show COVID hit, hit this show just like it did many podcasts pretty hard but like year two three and four of ccmtg just exploded and uh, this mindset of like i can be better tomorrow than i am today i can do more it changed the trajectory of the show and kind of what we were trying to be and we realized pretty quickly that it went beyond magic because listeners were telling us i just got this job and i talked about hashtag always improving and doing it i just bought my first house and i used the things that you said on the podcast to save money like these stories were coming in to this magic the gathering show and it was pretty unreal i want to take a step back and like kind of talk about what always improving has meant to everybody and i want to start with you mason like you obviously identified pretty well with it as a listener so i wanted to reach out to you first when spencer when spencer mentioned like getting better at magic there was nothing like that when he first started right and it's an interesting experience because it's a thing that i sympathize with but not with magic because when i when i started playing magic was about five, four years ago now. I have not been playing Magic for that long, all things considered. I felt it when I was like much younger, 11 or 12, 13, and I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh! And I would go to my locals every weekend. I went to the Saturday and the Sunday tournament almost every single week. No one tried to help me. There was no real way to learn stuff. I remember reading, if you used to play Yu-Gi-Oh!, remember uh, they had like blogs on it and stuff, and I would read it. But I couldn't quite get it. Part of that's like, you know, being a kid who doesn't understand some of the ideas they're trying to say. And part of that's like being a kid of dyslexia and trying to <laughs> comprehend all these big, long writing things. But like, there was nothing kind of like this. And so I stopped playing card games for a while uh, in high school, got back into it after high school, played a different card game a bunch, and then jumped into magic. And I had stuff like this. But it was something that I had done for the other card game, which is Cardfight Vanguard. And I had done a lot of content and I had started there. And it's funny, uh, you know, I didn't know about CC. And I think we would have actually started up around the same time, which I don't know if we've ever actually talked before since but the channel, the YouTube channel would have started around the time CC did, maybe a, maybe a month or two after. It was very much focused on like improving and something I'll tell everyone if you talk to me at a tournament or whatever, you talk about how bad a tournament is. All we can do is kind of, you know, play the best magic we can and improve from there, right? And like when you go to the tournament, the wins and the losses, it feels like it matters in the moment. And yeah, when you go to the tournament, you want to do well, you want to get a bunch of wins. But what actually matters is playing well, right? And like over a long enough tournaments, that's going to pay off and you're going to improve and have a lot more fun playing magic because you win more. Can I, can I pause and you for a CC second? Really, yeah, sure. Because I think you said something that might lose the listeners. Mason had a YouTube channel called SOV Mason. It's called. It was called the science of oh, Vanguard. the science of Vanguard. Sorry. And then there were there were other people but, on but the channel with you me. You didn't say that but, when you were like when you said the YouTube oh, channel. Yeah, it was yeah. like confusing. Yeah. The reason my YouTube channel, if you look at the the magic one, has so many subscribers but not many views, is because I just turned it over and I deleted all the Vanguard videos. I had done that sort of thing and been there and kind of done that and it was so much about like you know just doing better and always improving. And so when I started to want to play Magic uh, seriously and like try and compete and do that sort of thing, when reach out and find content, found another podcast, uh, I think it was the Spike feed that Spencer guested on. Yo, and from there, let's go. that's how I found CC. I think that's how, I guess I remember y'all talking about that too. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, go listen to that one. 
and I had I knew the term spike, and I was like, okay, like, you know, and went to this one and listened to it. And it was very similar to like the kind of stuff we talked about. And then, like Spencer said, I reached out because I had a little bit of experience in some of the stuff that seemed like they're having issues with, and now I'm here. But like always improving to me is really important because my life I've played a lot of card games and I've like worked on a lot of things and try to get there. And I don't look at things in the short term. And I like to look at things in the past and I like to think about when magic's over for me or when magic's over, I want to be able to look back and look back happily and fondly on the memories and know that I tried well and did all these sort of things because I have an experience like that already. I, I played another card game. I was very, very good at it did really well and I'm very happy and fond about my experience with that and now I'm creating new memories and doing this new thing and there's other things like that in high school too and I have a bunch of regrets about other stuff in life and things along those lines and so always improving to me uh, it's more of like a lifestyle and a way of like defaulting to things and I think it's why it connects so much with me because it's like I'm always working to do slightly better and improve and iterate if I can't have a conversation with someone, I have to jam my head into the wall and I have to get slightly better. So if I can't find someone to talk to me about something, it, it becomes very challenging to learn. So I have to, you know, like figure it out on my own and slowly improve. And somebody straight up, straight up told me that we were a cult a couple of times. You, you don't make it till you get haters and, and being called a cult's a big hater. This mental shift was a pretty big deal for me. We have six kids in your family, right? And you're all competitive. It's not always the, the best environment to grow up in sometimes and i think a lot of my siblings feel like they never got heard and like you feel like you have to compete for attention and for like all kinds of stuff and then also i was not taught critical thinking as a kid and it was something that i had to learn growing up and in all honesty like magic has probably taught me more in my life than like anything else it you, using magic as kind of that catalyst to learn a lot of things. I had a pretty important job interview last week. And one of the things that they asked me is like, what is your greatest accomplishment in your life? And I started sobbing. Like I didn't know that I was going to, cause I actually knew they were going to ask the question. Like I got sent the questions beforehand for the interview, but that was one of the questions is like, what's your greatest accomplishment? And I already knew what my answer was going to be. It was going to be recording this episode today. And I just broke down and started crying I think to me always improving just means that you understand that you're not perfect, that you are not always right. You're not going to be always right. Fun fact, just like life, magic's really freaking hard. Your goal is not to be perfect at your tournament. Your goal is to be the best you. And those are really different things. There are a lot of games of Magic that I've played that I thought I played a perfect game of Magic, where I'm sure if I went back and watched the tape, I'd be like, you're a dummy dum-dum. If you ever want to get into Super Smash Bros, like Ultimate will just let you save your replays. And the number of times where I was like, this is the best game of Smash I've ever played, save the replay, went to watch it before sending it to like Mason or Matt or whatever, I'm gone. I played like a freaking weirdo. <laughs> I am sure that we all have those moments in magic and always improving is about overcoming those moments. Or maybe it's more about having the moments, right? Where you feel that, where you feel like you did something great to be always improving and to always be improving is about realizing that you're not perfect and kind of moving forward. Well, I said it during the, um, the mic checks, but I've been playing magic for 13 years, which is literally half my life. I'm 26. I've been playing magic since I was 13. 
when I started playing Magic tournaments when I was like 17, my mom would always say like, oh, you know, good luck and like get me out the door to go get in, a, get in the car with like my friends who were in college and had a car and would drive to the tournaments. And one day, I, I don't even remember what possessed me to do this other than maybe like a handful of Star City articles I'd read like during class when I should have been doing other things, like paying attention in class. But I was like, stop wishing me good luck. Just tell me to play well. To the point where like, I just always have had this huge hunger to, to be as good a magic player as I can be. Like, this is something I've really devoted myself to. And I, I can see Mason laughing because it's like the most me story, right? That like 17 year old me is like, mom, I don't want to be lucky. I want to be good. Mom, it's not a phase. <laughs> I'm trying to get my micro down. And here I, am. <laughs> I got the picture and I come with you, dear. But when it comes to like always improving and the podcast, the first episode I came on here was, it was setting goals in magic. Top 10 CCMTG episode. We might be able to send you the text thread between me and Mason after that episode. It's legitimately top 10. The way I prepared for that, being on a Magic podcast first time, being on CC, I didn't really know much about CC. I don't really listen to a lot of Magic podcasts. It's not really how I took in most of my information. Usually a reader guy. Hence why I have a blog instead of my own podcast or whatever. Love it here. But I, I went and listened back to a bunch of episodes that Mason and Mebo had done before me. And listen to, you know, just get a feel of like, okay, what am I walking into? And at the start of every episode, there was this segment, always improving. And I was like, like, this is such a difference maker in what I see myself wanting to do if I were to do magic content. And I just love everything about it and the idea behind it to the point where like when Mason asked me after that, if I wanted to like make it a regular thing you know, I was already like super down because all of the fear I might have had about like oh is it going to be like I'm going to have to play is it going to be like back to how I felt about kind of writing sometimes where I'd be like I'm just going to have to keep up with all these formats and then kind of dispense information about them kind of for me as someone who was entering this environment made me feel super at home as something that was already such a part of my approach to magic of just always trying to be the best magic player I can be on any given day on any given turn and every in any given match you know and, um, you know, there's nowhere in my life that I think that that approach that really has stemmed from, uh, you know, me growing up and playing a bunch of magic hasn't touched a part of my life. And I'm not surprised that so many viewers feel the same way because it really is like such a big cornerstone of the show. Like it just instantly clicked with me. I don't even know what to say about it. It was just so perfect. And it's probably the reason that I was like so excited to, to get on why, I don't know, I love doing, doing an episode every week, so... I mean, they pay you the literal largest compliment I could pay you right now, Abe. The amount that you remind me sometimes when we podcast of Michael is unbelievable. You just remind me of him a lot as far as like your really laid back approach to a thing that you're really passionate about. You come across so like reserved when I can tell inside you're like really excited about something. It's really interesting. Is it the way that I'm also like able to tell my mom to stop wishing me good luck <laughs> yeah that is something michael That's would, fascinating. that is something that the hinder father would say to his mom mama hinder father <laughs> no one of my family has ever asked me about a magic tournament for me it's really cool when i hear people other people's stories about that i want to talk about really quickly about like what change that you didn't expect i'll do a life one since we do so many episodes about not life if you listen to this podcast regularly or you follow me on social media, or you've seen me stream, or you've interacted with me at a tournament, you might think that I never showed up. And you'd be right. But that wasn't always the case. <laughs> Back when I was, uh, actually until about 
13, 14, I actually just had no friends and I didn't talk to anyone and I probably have said more words on this podcast than I did for my entirety of school outside of answering questions when called upon. And that up to that point, which would be a sophomore in high school. And I struggle with pretty bad and uh, extreme anxiety, especially social anxiety at almost all points uh, in life. And uh, a form of improving that's kind of happened from that is tackling it and dealing with that where part of it was the good people at Lexapro uh, helping out a little bit. But also theater class uh, was uh, really big. And the idea that like figuring out that like, hey, other people are feeling similar thoughts to you. You're just having them more extremely. Other kids feel this way. And like practicing talking in public and speaking and that sort of thing is not a thing that came easily to me. It was never a skill I naturally had. And since then, I I think I've gotten pretty good at relating and talking and sympathizing and interacting with people and talking and doing this whole sort of rigmarole. And that's a, a pretty big difference. And I mean... I guess at this point, two-thirds of my life I've been a talker and one-third I haven't, with my birthday being in two days. Because I'd be about 13 or 14-ish, so. I remember learning about you being a theater kid and, like, me being like, dude, I was a theater kid, too. It's also, calling me a theater kid is aggressive. I took theater class, and then I took it again senior year because I had all my credits done except one, and I retook theater. And, in fact, I, during my evolution of becoming a talker, I was in a computer class that was pointless, and so I decided I'd rather do theater, which was pointless. And so I walked into theater class and told my teacher that I had fixed it with the principal and not to worry. And then I walked to the principal the next day and said, don't worry, I took care of it with my other teachers. We're good. And I swapped my schedule around. My, <laughs> my, senior, my senior high school, uh, I did FFA for a full day every other day. Uh, student teaching or whatever it was called for the theater teacher then theater was that day and then the other day was like uh, basic non-electives and then stage crew i knew it was a stage crew guy it is if you're a high schooler right i mean they're probably not doing high school productions if you ever need to give advice to a high schooler and you want them to be happier Tell them to go do stage crew for their theater company. For their elective. It's actually unreal. you will get all of the whatever time you get for the production going on to not be in class because you have to work on stage crew stuff. You'll hang out with all your friends during that whole time, and you'll have to do no actual work. At least four to five people in stage crew class had to do actual work. Yeah, you won't be one of them. Don't worry about it. And then everybody else, if asked to do something, should do it for the people. if, if one of those five people is like, hey, can you help me with this thing? You should do it. Yeah, you have to like but, move around some wood or like yeah, some furniture. Yeah. Y'all's school experience is so different than mine. That was not the case at my school at all. It, it was not. It was an after school only thing for stage crew. Oh, no. So you're, you're no. not during got, school hours. I got four elective full credits from stage crew. I signed up on a list to be on stage crew in my freshman year because... Uh, like a friend of mine was doing it in the grade above me. I didn't do anything up until two weeks before the play happened. We had a musical, a play, Shakespearean festival. I got two days off of class because of, I signed a clipboard. And all I had to do was stand backstage on like two nights out of one of my weeks. We actually had two plays uh, my junior and senior. Anyway, we're going way did the deepest of cuts for episode 400. For what it's worth though, speaking of always improving in stage crew, if you ever want to play with like 
2000 plus dollar equipment and learn sound design or like learn lighting or something that actually is like an always improving class that you can take in high school like it's actually unreal if you're like a junior or senior in high school you can pretty legitimately network with the people who are like actually in charge of the equipment yeah like and because they you and learn from them and like get their business card and talk to them about maybe like a little bit of apprenticeship situation there's a lot of opportunity there if you listen to a podcast you might be into audios abe what is the moment in your life other than stage crew that like you kind of didn't expect or or mtg for what it's worth um you kind of didn't expect to be improving at I'm kind of similar to Mason in the sense that I was like not really a talker for for a long time. I, I mean, I'd like I had some friends, more friends than Mason, because I'm more popular, of course. Well, I had zero. Some other <laughs> like you know, I was really speaking of bigger number, better person. Let's check the work on this one. I like graduated high school and went to community college. Kind of just like through my time in community college, I was still like a very like mostly just nervous, shy, reserved, awkward person. Almost exactly like Mason. Not not in the same way. Where it was like I became a talker, but like I found a lot of grounds through learning how to improve and meeting people who facilitated me improving and were willing to help me out and were willing to like engage with me. A lot of confidence that I still carry with me like today. I don't think there's like a single thing that I've ever approached that I felt uncomfortable with since like, I I guess I was like 18 and and was doing that, that like I haven't been able to remind myself like, you know, if I'm, if I'm failing or I'm struggling, that it is like just my first attempt or I'm still early in the process of learning. And it's something I'm working on improving at and that like I can grow at and become better at. There's not anything that is is an obstacle for me these days that like I can't take a step back from and remind myself of just the reality in kind of a humbling way that like, you know, there are tons of things I'm going to be bad at and there are tons of things that are going to stress me out or be difficult. But as long as I'm trying to improve at them and I'm using an informed process to try to get better at these things I need to or want to get better at really kind of made it easier for me to feel in the way that you were saying before where like I'm kind of like really reserved about something I'm passionate about it's like just a lot of understanding and like trust in this process of just one one foot in front of the other just getting closer and closer to being over an obstacle and that mindset really just does permeate through everything in my life all the challenges I face all of the small things and the big things. It's amazing how much like a good relationship with a process can change everything else in your life. Because if you understand and have a good process for one thing and you're able to think laterally about it to move it to another thing, or even just to understand that those two things might be similar enough that there's some overlap. For me, it just really gave me a sense of confidence that I didn't have at any other point in my life. I don't think I would have landed like the job that I landed. I don't think I would have you know, been able to make it through like the degree I earned at college. I, there's so many things I would not have been able to make it through if not for achievements and approach through improving in magic and uh, what that has really like taught me and had me grow through on many levels that seem completely trivial to anyone as an outsider. <laughs> I don't think anything you just said was trivial. I think it's actually a pretty huge deal. And I'm going to build on top of it because I think that yours is really closely aligned to mine in a lot of different ways. Despite what you might think listening to this show, I think that one of my biggest changes that I didn't expect from this show is kind of learning, because I've always proven I've become a process-oriented, results-driven person. So I adjust my process to get the results that I want. I think that people see that a lot in the content that I create, whether it's hashtag quest for 10, whether it's the Chartered Clash series that hopefully we'll be starting again soon. Wink, wink. Understanding like that I can be results driven without being married to an individual thing. 
uh, or being process oriented while being results driven, it's changed my life in a lot of different ways. I got the job at that startup that we mentioned at the beginning of the show because of this podcast, like straight up a podcast listener was my reference for the job. It doubled my income, got promoted because of this always improving mentality. I then wouldn't have gotten my job in software without working for a startup. My company that I worked for, Thumbtack, had a rule, like you had to meet a 95% CSAT score, which for those who don't know is a customer satisfaction rating. Their goal is to have the best customer service in the world as a startup, and they achieved it. I, I actually used magic a lot to help me with that. So if I'm going to see this company and I'm going to get promoted, I want to be the best at the thing that I'm doing. And the way that you did that is you had to be above that, right? So like if 95% is the goal, it means that or one in 20 calls can be rough for me uh, as a person that's on the phones for the startup. Um, and I had a 98% customer satisfaction rating, you know, got moved to the engagement team. And I looked at the person who was the best on the engagement team. And I walked up to her and I said, like, I'm going to be better than you. And she's like, no, you're not. And so, like, we would compete. Like, I would go into work and compete with her every day. And 100% of this came from magic. Wanting to do better tomorrow. And if she beat me one day, I'd be like, that's fine. I'm going to get five more internal sales tomorrow. If we helped five clients, I'm going to get helped 10 tomorrow. It 100% came from the listener support telling me that what I was doing and what I was teaching on the show made things better. If you had asked me when I started the show... Uh, if the biggest interview of my life would be happening literally tomorrow and what it would be for, I would say that you were out of your freaking mind. The show and this mindset has changed me to be that process-oriented, results-driven person. I want to talk really quickly about how we think it's helped the show, and I'm going to go first. Always improving is the thing that made it through every iteration of every co-host. Everyone identified with it, whether it was Seth and John, Allie and Mason, Allie and Abe, Trey, Mason, Spencer, all of the other Spencer durations, everyone identified with this idea. I knew that the core value of what you guys were trying to achieve was the same thing that I wanted to achieve. I kind of said it when I was ranting a bit about how great I thought it was and how much it really resonated with me, but something that kind of makes me feel reserved, even when I was sharing like my written content or any amount of magic content that I make, is this fear that I'm going to like write something or put out something that's not going to have any longevity. I'm going to spend this time to make a list of three decks you can play in standard tomorrow. This week on Card Kingdom. Yeah, and, and, then, and then you know what? <laughs> Two months from now, there's not going to be a reason for someone to want to go back and read that. And so as much as that might provide value for the people who read it immediately, it's not something that really captures my attention or my interest when it comes to like putting an effort. And that was kind of like why I never got back into writing that much after I uh, left Star City Select is that I didn't really feel like there was another place where I could be writing something where I could gave a longevity to the piece, gave some uh, the listener a takeaway that was bigger than was necessarily being discussed. And this existing on every single episode makes every episode by default timeless to me. There's not a single episode of the show where you can't have something to take away, even if you go back and listen to our modern episode from like right after Modern Horizon comes out. We're all those things we said basically don't mean anything. Uh, with like Luris being gone, with how wrong we were with like months of time passing. But we did improve that week. 
you know, we, we did share what we did to improve that week and we did share all of our thought processes and everything. And all of that combined really makes it so that the show is more than just a, you better listen this week. It's a catch the episodes, catch up on it, listen back, find a topic you like, even if it's not the most recent or current, there's always a nugget of wisdom in there. There's all, we're always trying to put something in there that, you know, anyone can learn from or take away from or relate to. And that is like, just so something that I think really sets it apart and makes me feel so lucky to be a part of the show more than any other magic show I could be on. So you are going to make me cry. Um, I worried about that today when I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to cry. I will, I will cry for what it's worth. Uh, I'm a huge crier. You guys have done podcast meetings with me and like, I'm not as strict about them as I used to be because I think that kind of structure scares people away from me, even though like, it's how I think like, but part of our podcast meeting, we, we, we did two things back in the day. One of them was the way that we do it right now, like where we plan out our next eight weeks or so. Uh, we look at we looked at all the PTQ seasons, the events and stuff, and then we plan our shows. And one of the things that came up that we did in the podcast meetings, but like one of the things that we talked about is like we wanted one timeless episode every so often. I think at the time we were trying to do six weeks at a time, so in those six weeks we wanted them. We used to do our podcast meetings as lunches, like lunch meetings at a place. And I actually remember the time that we were at a Buffalo Wild Wings because it was Casey's pick for where we would eat and he wants some B-dubs. One of the other things that we talked about was like, we did a brainstorming session where we would just pitch training grounds to each other and then talk about what they would mean, write them down. It was really fun and like really helped the show, but the timeless things like, okay, like let's pitch five timeless episodes and then stack rank them as to like how, how we feel like we could do them and stuff like that. And so the fact that just the idea of the segment felt timeless to you, it means, it means a lot to me. Uh, I think the the big one for me that I uh, think about when it comes to the show is a little bit of a dagger at Magic players in the tournaments. But have you ever been at a tournament and someone had a bad tournament and they just like lose it? Oh, only like, every blah, 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 blah. yeah, like it happens every tournament, right? There's someone who's like loses it, they get really mad, they don't want to play Magic tournaments anymore or whatever, and they like sell their deck or something berserk, right? And the mindset of always improving means like you know if you have a bad podcast or a thing doesn't go well. It just means we're going to work on it and iterate for the next one. I mean, it's helped the show because, like, we've been doing it for 400 episodes. I've been doing it for, like, 200 episodes. When an episode isn't good or I don't like what happened on it or I think I could have done better, I just try to do better on the next one. You guys you know? literally jumped on a call with me three weeks ago. Like, at a, like I don't know how Abe was awake for what it's worth. Dude, but you don't understand, man. My sleep schedule is bad. <laughs> I think it was Mason had this always improving moment way back in the day that really stuck with me. That's how important this segment is to me that I remember specific things from specific people. But Mason had this story where somebody came up to him and wanted to talk to him and he stopped them before they talked. And he said, are you about to tell me a bad speech story or do you want my advice? That is the most candid, honest type of interaction with a magic player that I have ever heard. Regardless of what that person wanted, they knew Mason was going to listen. If that's not always improving, I don't know what is. Do you remember talking about this, Mason? Do you actually know the moment? Part, part of this comes from frustration in the moment of me listening that's to bad okay. the whole time. I, but, I, yes, I but, know, but like, I, I have yes. actually done this with some of my best friends now. Even when I walk up to them, I'm like, hey, I'm in a bad mood. Can I give you a bad beat? Just to vent? Rather than 
just coming up inventing. It's like, I don't know what your mindset is. We're mindset is we're both at a magic tournament. Well, how do you guys want to apply this moving forward? We'll, we'll jump to you, Abe. There's not a way you can't apply it moving forward. That's how I feel about it. There's never a thing that you will encounter that you want to commit yourself to that as long as you are deciding to, if you keep on, if you keep yourself humble and, you know, approaching it with this mindset of, I just need to get better at it. And that's what my goal is, is to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday, to be one step closer to the top of the mountain than I was one step ago, not become complacent in your pursuit of it. That really applies to everything. That's why I say it's so timeless. That's why it's so worth this whole episode and worth every 100 episodes coming back and gushing about. You can always apply it to anything moving forward as long as all inside of your locus of control. Whatever it is that you can do to improve, if you remind yourself that that is the ultimate goal is for you to improve at what you're doing, you can get better and you can be moving forward. That mindset and that approach, finding good processes that emphasize that and reinforce that in you is really, really powerful. I have pretty big plans for CC in the next 100 episodes. Seeing the feedback that we've gotten on YouTube, seeing the feedback that we've gotten from patrons since I've rejoined the show has really reinvigorated me in a lot of ways. Due to, I'll, I'll be really honest, due to like therapy, I've really recovered from my imposter syndrome when it comes to this podcast. And I have plans to up a lot of parts of the production value for this show. And I think that's part of being always improving. What about you, Mason? It's a little hard for me to like answer this a question because it's like, where can you apply this moving forward? And it's kind of a guiding light or philosophy, as Abe said earlier. But what I can say for what the listeners can maybe expect or something along those lines, the wanting to improve the show in that, that aspect, wanting to improve the way we tackle and handle shows and the amount of like levity versus seriousness versus like how condensed and concise can we get this for you is uh it's only going to get better with time and gets better as chemistry gets figured out more and more which happens more and more over time i think that'll do it for the main topic we're going to move into kind of our final wrap-ups but our last couple segments i tried to get as many of these in as i could so i invited patrons and other people to submit always improving stories that's where one of adrian's came from but Mikey says, I don't know if this is an always improving moment, but Waffle said something to chat that really resonated with me, that it's not about how many wins you get with a deck, but how the deck feels. I think this is a really great always improving moment. The number of times we're like, we'll be like 2-0 in a league and we already want to change cards. Like we already know that like cards are bad. The same thing happens in reverse though, where you're like 0-2 or 0-3 with a deck and you see the things that you did right and you know what you want to change practice is not the same as the tournament. I, for myself, have had a lot of 5-0 decks or 7-0 decks, depending on the client, or where I'm like, I hated this deck. I was only playing for the ticks or for the, the gems or the gold or whatever. And like, I would change a lot of the things. And understanding that your goals going into those type of moments, I think is a huge always improving moment. So you mentioned how sometimes you're like 0-2 or 0-3 in the league and you see the things you want to change. But I think more importantly, or it, it needs the, to be said at least out loud, the is that, that the I things you well. don't change. My deck is really good. I got a little unlucky in some spots. I think I could have played better. I'm not going to overcorrect for something that's not here. And I'm looking to see how things go and see how they interact. I typed this out a little bit in the Patreon-only Discord, which if you're in Patreon of the show, you'll see these questions ahead of time. You get to ask these questions, and sometimes we answer them there as well. 
And uh, a friend of mine, Jesse, actually had this moment and we had this conversation coming back from the NRG literally last night where she was like, I think I need to understand that the league results don't aren't going to correlate with tournament results and they aren't exactly the same. Because going into Vegas, she was like, I think she said like 26 and 4 combo deck or whatever. I can't remember the name of the deck right now. Uh, going to Vegas and then she 0-3 dropped. And then going into this weekend, she was 23 and 2 with Blue White Hammer across leagues and just crushing it. Just like crushing me in practice games too. Like I'm really trying. I can't beat her. She's unstoppable, right? She just can't lose. She plays a tournament. She goes, they, they missed uh, playing for top eight in the team event. But her day was medium, and then her day two with the single event, she O2 dropped. And it really kind of got to her at first, but she went on an actual factual hike and then kind of came back, and we talked about in the car, and she's like, yeah, this is a huge always improving moment for you. Huge level up. I knew this would come up on the show eventually, so it's awesome gets to happen the next day. But it's like the wins don't really matter. What matters is like, okay, but like did you win a bunch of games and then your deck was kind of misbuilt and a little clunky? Or, like, did you not actually have good things, but, like, you drew the hammers enough where, like, you got to go there, you know? And those sort of things are really what matters. So looking at how the deck functions and plays and also, like, thinking about, like, oh, wow, I got really lucky for it to break that way. It's probably not supposed to go that way if things go well. You know, for every game that you say, I would have won if I had played better, you need to be honest about, like, oh, I think if my opponent's sequence better there, I would have lost. And if you don't do that sort of stuff, you're going to be bad. I have two thoughts on what you just said, and then I want to pitch it to you. The number one thing is... I have not gotten the past the point of being a tinkerer still. I think it's one of my biggest weaknesses in Magic. When I say, like, I 2-0 and I want to change something, like, I that I mean that. But I mean that no matter how many games I am into a deck. One of the biggest moments on both this podcast, because the podcast covered it a lot, and what Mason just said is we had a PTQ where our entire team played the same green-red devotion deck. None of us top-aided. And we had like an 85% win percentage across the group. We just got the bad beats of the decks that we prepared for, which was 10 different standard decks. We lost twice. We learned that like sometimes someone is going to show up with some BS. You can't get tilted when the BS shows up. You just have to play your best at that time. We got lined up against like mono white knights in a format where that's not a real thing. If magic was easy, I think it would be so much less fun. Like, winning matches is the goal in some settings. You know, when you're playing a deck to learn something, it's about what you learn, not about the wins and losses you take. All of the information you want is from inside the game. And so, you know, there are plenty of times where you can play a deck, it feels like it's functioning really well, and it loses. I feel like Blood Moon is the perfect example of a card that people often fall into the trap of getting too many wins with. If they're playing a deck that has Blood Moon in it, and they get these free wins, especially on Magic Online, where they just, like, Jam a Blood Moon, either could be in paper too. You play a Blood Moon and then your opponent stumbles, they weren't expecting it, and this card nets kind of this free win. And there's something to be said for free wins, especially when you're trying to win a tournament. Those free wins, you should think about how avoidable are they. If people's mana bases are just good and and can afford to get basics a lot, then you're not going to get those wins at a tournament. It's not going to happen that way, and you need to like think about what's going on in there. Like There was a time where I played Splinter Twin... And I just had, like, Blood Moon in my Splinter Twin decks. I was like, I need more. Like, it's just winning, like, games for, like, Blue Moon decks. It's got to be good. I'll just play Twin in Blue Moon as my kill condition. It was terrible. I did it for, like, five PTQs. It was awful. And I just kept on telling myself to keep doing it because Blood Moon kept on feeling like a solution to my problems when in actuality I was just, like, totally undoing all of the good of my deck. Evaluate whether or not what you're doing and what your deck is doing 
is working in the abstract, assembling its game plan. Is that game plan good? Is so much more important to understand out of the practice you put in than am I opening some nice treasure chests at the end of my league? Because you can buy treasure chests, but you can't buy match wins. I want to talk about like what you just said. I'd go into our next question, which was from Adrian, which is what are your most memorable always improving stories? I think this is a great question. I already mentioned one of them. Mason's moment of like, I'm going to like set myself up for understanding where this other person is at so that I can continue. I don't want to undersell how impactful that was to me, Mason, because like I legitimately think that listening to bad beat stories, you have to be in the right frame of mind for, right? And if they say, I want to tell you a bad beat story, you get the opportunity to say, that's totally okay. I currently am not in the frame of mind to hear that. Setting yourself up for for kind of traps, right? Where like, whether it's a free win card or stuff like that. I remember multiple times for me where like, I would get hung up on something, doing something that no other card could have done for me. And then just like hammering that card into the literal ground. It might have been this year where I talked about challenging my heuristics as I was coming back to magic was like a pretty big thing, especially in things like modern. The whole format changes every time they release a modern masters or modern whatever set. Like it's a new format. And challenging your heuristics on deck building and things like that is a pretty big always improving moment for me. The other one that I will say is one that I posted uh, in our Discord. It was an always improving story that is so funny to look back on because I don't know that Mason or Abe know it. But I'm going to read the message that somebody sent me uh, this week that says, May sound weird, but I still think about you when I'm filling my ice trays. Uh, Thanks for that life skill. For those who don't know, uh, there was a long time on Constructed Criticism where I didn't have an ice maker in my house. I have one a foot away from me right now. And I love ice. Whether I like ice water is in front of me at work all the time. Ice vod like whatever I'm drinking, I like a lot of ice. I'm a total American. I know some of our listeners are not in America and they think I'm a weirdo, but like if if it hurts my teeth, it's better. Like I that's that's how I feel about it. Uh I didn't have an ice maker and it really bugged me when other people would use the ice tray and not fill it up. Like, I will fill up the ice tray. If I walk into the kitchen, I will just fill up the ice tray. It's so funny that this is the message I got this week. Because the guy that told us that he built his house, developing the habit of savings, was developing, was from Spencer filling the ice tray. There was another person that I'll mention, because I forgot it until this moment, and I might cry. His name was Quentin James Nash. He's one of our longest patrons ever. He's not currently a patron. I don't think he plays Magic. But he is a doctor. He was delivering a baby that was born that had some stuff going wrong. And he messages us after this delivery. And he said, I'm in like having this moment where I'm delivering this baby. And I thought about what you guys said on the podcast about going back to the basics. And I went back to the basics and was able to deliver this baby successfully. I think those two, the baby story and the ice tree story are, are my favorite. They're not mine. I mean, the ice tray one is, but like somebody literally fixing their finances because I filled my ice tray is like that's just that's, that's just, just the un- most. I feel like the most <laughs> magic player story of all time. <laughs> all right, I'm delivering this baby. What did Spencer and Quentin say on this week of constructive criticism? Was like what just happened? Like under the gun. I think it might be Jesse's from yesterday 
which isn't mine, but I'm I'm going to steal it. Where it is like uh, we're preparing for two events. I mean, like what did we say? She would have like a sixty and six record or whatever for things. Did you know not great and kind of came to the conclusion without having to be told it or whatever and had this huge level moment and it's so sick to see her um, really trying to improve and push herself and all that sort of stuff and the short time I've known her and I am teaming with her and Bob and Cheese and she just messaged me she five would a league and she was like but I want to make these changes because I think these things are bad or whatever and it's like let's go it's, you the, know? it's the best right <laughs> like when I still need to work on that so I love that one well, we're going to read this last one. I have a question. I think it's been recycled a few times, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I spent the weekend playtesting Modern to find a deck for SG Dallas. Started playing Living End. After they moved off it due to its control matchup being so difficult. But the question is, how do I know if a deck and its positioning is bad or if it's because I'm a mediocre pilot? A follow-up to this would be, what is a proficiency between 0 and 100%? Mason, you already want to answer this, so I'm going to let you go. Like, Adrian feels this sort of way, so I'm just going to set it up here. It's like, if... These sort of things happen. You need to pick the deck that's best for you to do well if your goal for the tournament is to do as well as you possibly can. If your goal is to practice and work on these other things, that's cool, whatever. But it sounds like Adrian's goal is to win the tournament. And so I would pick the deck that you feel you can do best with that is a reasonable choice, which is something you've probably heard me say a lot on the show. Adrian listens to all the episodes. So I know Adrian's heard it. But reasonable deck gamers is what I say. You, if you got to be able to come to me, I'm going to come to somebody and tell you my deck. I don't want anyone to be like, huh. You know, like, what's happening? Gruel Midrange and the Death Shadow World? What's happening? What, what, what? Like, you need to pick a reasonable deck and pick the one that makes the most sense to do. So if you feel like, hey, I'm not a very good pilot for these reasons, and that's something you can work on and always improve in a different part of your life. Even though I'm not a big fan of having these short-term girls, it's fine to make that your goal and be like, okay, well, if that's the case, I'm going to play Murktide Regent because it's the most well-rounded generic deck. I'm not going to play it optimally, but I've got Ragavan and Counterspell and that's going to beat some percentage of players no matter how much better they are than me. I have two things I want to talk about. First is the living end control matchup. If all you're trying to beat is counterspell, you can probably figure out a way to do it, man. If control, quote-unquote, is a bad matchup, don't pack in a matchup so fast. It's possible that that's true, but then you have to ask yourself the question that we talked about, I think it was two weeks ago that we kind of were talking about, like, what am I trying to beat? How am I trying to beat it? What am I trying to give up, right? This whole, that whole idea. The second thing that I want to say is like this proficiency level thing. At some point, you're going to need to be good at something you're bad with. And you need to make the decision to become good at that thing. At some point, midrange is going to be bad. Combo is going to be bad. Control is going to be bad. Aggro is going to be bad. And you need to then say, well, what's next up on my plate? And if you don't do it, you'll just become that person at your FNM that's a control player, that's an aggro player, that's a combo player. And you need to decide. Mason's not going to tell you, Abe's not going to tell you. If you think Living End is good right now, cool. Learn Living End. I, Mason talked about like being a reasonable deck person. Arena Decklist did like a two-hour segment, it felt like, on Jerry playing the wrong deck at tournaments, trying to be the smartest person in the room. Honest, Jerry, I had a lot of success with Jeskai when you had success, success with Jeskai. I cashed two SEG events. I w probably won thousands of dollars playing Magic the Gathering with your deck. So while you're saying I should have been playing whatever the heck you're talking about, I had success with it. It, it also was the deck that got me to bridge from mid-range into control. I, it is the deck that literally took me from 
Jund into Blue White Drago and like understanding your limitations and like what you're good at and then deciding what you're trying to achieve in a tournament when you're going to SCJ Dallas. The first thing that you need to do is decide what am I trying to do? If your goal is to play your best tournament, you can pick whatever deck you want. I can't pick a deck that I'm not going to have fun with. Actually, after my first loss, will not be capable of moving forward. First, I just want to, I was I was popping off because Spencer reiterating the point of do not pigeonhole yourself by being afraid of learning a new thing in Magic, especially when it's a deck like Living End or most combo decks. Even they're kind of these individual puzzles of like proactive thing that you're doing that's really busted but is easy to interact with on some axis and then other people picking a way to interact with you on that axis so understanding how to beat those patterns or how to like you know maneuver those kinds of games is a pretty small problem to solve in the grand scheme of like all things magic you could ever encounter right you don't have to figure out like you know like what threat suite do i play to like deal with the blue white deck when i'm playing this aggro deck or whatever you know so if it really just comes down to you don't like how difficult the control matchup is is that because you're afraid of learning how to navigate the control matchup as living end or are there other things also with living end that don't that make you not want to play it because with decks that are you know very uh very linearly proactive and have one game plan that proficiency slider that you're imagining in your mind of like uh, between zero and 100 it's easier to get closer to 100 than it is with something that's very wide and varied and relies a ton on knowing every single card that your opponent could have. An old, old lantern controller, like playing a, a Jund deck against a, an open field. The other thing I'll give you is a piece of wisdom that I got from uh, my friend Jonathan Skenick many years ago on a car ride, which was you should play the deck that you feel like you'll stomach the losses with the best. If you pick a deck and you... You taught you, you know, you're honest with yourself, like, I'm probably going to be bad in these matchups. And when I encounter those matchups, I'm going to lose them or they're going to be tough and it's going to happen. And I will feel okay if I lose to these matchups and I, you know, encounter the others, win or lose, whatever. Um, but I feel good about my deck choice because at the end of the day, I will have had the best time at this tournament and have given myself the best chance or, or whatever motivates you for that tournament. If you feel like the only thing holding you back is the control matchup and you feel like you don't have the time to figure it out or you can't really understand how to get it to a point where you feel comfortable with you could even just write off every control matchup as being something you're okay with losing because it's the thing that's not in your skill set you know you just didn't have enough time to really figure it out but you feel good about every other matchup so you're gonna play living end that is a great plan you don't need to be the best living end player in the world or the best player of any deck in the world to register in a tournament and have a chance at winning that's what makes magic so great in so many cases, if everything else about the deck feels good, then you shouldn't worry about the fact that this one weakness you're identifying in yourself means that you're not a perfect player of the deck. You should focus on all of the things around that deck that are making you like drawn to it. If you feel like the deck is just powerful and what you want to be doing, work on a way forward instead of trying to go somewhere else to find something better. Because it sounds like if you like the deck other than this one thing, that that one thing being solved would mean you'd like the deck enough to play it at the tournament. Darth Claymore on three shortcuts to improve at MTG says, between episodes 393, personalized goals, 395, being okay with tough matchups, and this episode, you guys have improved my magic skills and my enjoyment in playing the game. Just wanted to say thanks. I wanted to say thank you to you. That comment made my month, mostly because a lot of, two of these three topics were mine, so like, woo! Go Spencer. This is the thing that gets me up to do this podcast each day. And I just, 
thank you. Like that, that type of feedback uh, is my lifeblood. So uh, if you had your comment read this week or any other week, reach out to me personally. I'm at Spencer3H or if you want to reach out to the podcast or in Discord, wherever. And uh, Oasis has offered to update how we do this. We might start doing promos store credit, like all kinds of stuff for this, these, these comments and questions. So if you are getting them answered, reach out. I'm going to work with Oasis to uh, really sponsor this segment of the show. So I'm going to wrap up the show pretty quickly. I just want to say thank you to uh, Sam Black for drafting archetypes, Mythic Michaela for Arena Mythic Cast, and the guys over at Common Knowledge, whether it be Christian or Brad. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to give it a like, a sub, or the very best way is to get a review on whatever podcast platform you are doing. So those likes, those subs, those comments on YouTube, uh, Spotify, wherever it is, help the show more than you could possibly imagine. Since we started doing these YouTube comment segment, the show has grown substantially on YouTube, literally from single digits to way more than that. And continue to do those things i've seen the reviews i've seen the things that, that people are doing it changes the show if you don't find me you can do it at spencer 13 h you can find me every week on ccmtg Ooh, wow every other week on arena deck lists and or the need to nerd podcast uh we skipped uh mythic as this week due to me studying for job interviews but we'll be back and we're looking for mythic guests and uh we're reviewing the labyrinth this week on Mythicast on uh, Need to Nerd, so check that out. What about you, Ape? People can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings. They can find my blog for all of your tournament reports. If you play a Magic tournament and you want to write about it and let people know how that was, how you did, how you felt, how you hashtag always improved, you should send me an email over treeoftalesmtg at gmail.com and get that posted. Really exciting stuff. Got articles coming out. I really need you guys to do this. I really want to buy Tree of Tales and incorporate it into CCMTG. Uh, and to make that happen, Abe needs to get some content so that I can give him a fat check and, and move you guys over. So Find me here each and every week. You can find me uh, at Card Kingdom. And you can find me at uh, sometimes on Twitch.television. But most importantly, Twitter, Baker Number Better Person, at Mason E. Clark. Uh, if my number is smaller than I am not as good as a person but if i'm bigger i'm clearly better and so i need to get a bigger number i love the dagger at the dagger king ape thank you everybody so much for listening and we'll see you guys all next week with episode 401 of constructed criticism